If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. You have the ability to fly. You're in this 360 degree world and you can fly in any direction and you're not flying a vehicle, you're flying, you know, personally like in a dream or like Superman. And for pioneering artist and visual effects designer Kevin Mack, giving people the ability to fly in virtual reality is just the beginning. Kevin has been exploring and innovating the digital creation of art since the 1980s. In 1999, he won an Academy Award for implementing a rule-based system to create the tree for the film What Dreams May Come. Kevin's research and his talks on the science behind perception and visualization led UCLA's School of Medicine to honor him with the title of Honorary Neuroscientist in 2006. And more recently, He's been using his expertise in areas including 3D printing and artificial life to design three virtual reality experiences, Zen Parade, Flortasia, and Anandala. All three works have a common denominator. They're designed to inspire awe and enhance well-being. Kevin, what do you remember best about your growing up years that inspired you to become both an artist and a scientist? Well, I think I, think I just kind of always was that. I was always into those things. There was never a time where I considered doing anything else. It was always, I was making art from the time I was a little kid and and really interested in the technology of making art. So part of that is because I grew up in a family of artists and my parents were in the film industry. And in particular in animation, they had started out working at and met at Disney Studios. So I was into all of it from the very beginning. I'll share a fun trivia fact that your website says. It says that you are the child of Muscle Brain and Tinkerbell. Would you tell me about that? Yes. My father, Bryce Mack, was a background painter and a story man at Disney's in the 30s and 40s and a colorful character. And he was an artist, but he was also an athlete. And so he had developed the nickname of Muscle Brain from a very early age. And my mother was in the ink and paint department, one of the pioneering members of the ink and paint department, and also was the original model for Tinkerbell. They had her come over and started doing designs for Tinkerbell based on her. And that sounds like absolute heaven for a child growing up with a creative mindset. It was pretty great. What was one of the best lessons you learned about creating art with technology as you were growing up? Well, I think, I guess it really just, for me, I think the search for novelty is a big part of that. Just inspiration and getting new ideas. Technology You know, back then, the technology for making art was pens and brushes and paints and and so on. But there was also, I learned about animation at a very early age. So there was cameras and, and the techniques of animation and filmmaking. So for me, it was really just an ongoing process of learning. My father and 
my mother and, and their friends, I, I was just always immersed in that combination of things. How did you first become aware of virtual reality as a vehicle for art? Well, that's a, an odd one for me because at a very young age, I believe I was four years old, I was observing these agave cactuses or plants in my backyard. We had just moved into this house, and I just couldn't get over them. I was so struck with them. I was fascinated by their bizarre shapes. And I had had a vivid imagination and and was prone to daydreams and visions, really. And I would sit in front of these cactus and... I would just have these, I wound up having conversations with them and they would speak to me. And, and then they, they started projecting visions into my mind. And they would show me other worlds and other dimensions and, and just incredible things that would fill me with awe. And so somehow in that process and and subsequent experiences, the idea of being able to share my visions with other people really obsessed me. And I just, you know, I would have these crazy visions and I would want to, uh, and dreams and, and just imagination, and I wanted to share that with people so badly. And I would, you know, I would draw and paint and sculpt and, and, and do you know, make art in order to do that. But the idea of using technology to actually directly communicate that experience or my experience to other people really preoccupied me for, you know, throughout my childhood. So I would make drawings of of helmets with projectors on them, and I had this idea for surround sound speakers controlled by computers to create a spatial audio experience. And of course, this was back when, when computers were just kind of science fiction or the, the domain of, you know, the military and whatnot. So it's just something that's been a part of my life from really the beginning. And from there, what was the next step for you when you were envisioning all these cool things with computers that weren't yet in the mainstream? How did you first get your hands on something that enabled you to create VR and do 3D printing as you do now? Well, you know, I got into animation, and, and then later I got into video art. We pooled our money with a friend and went in on a video camera long before they were affordable. <laughs> and we started experimenting with video feedback and various compositing tricks and and so on. And, of course, it was so expensive back then and so difficult. But it was a, you know, it's been a long and frustrating road just because it was so inaccessible. It was so expensive. And as an artist, I didn't have computer training or anything. And when, you know, when there started to be computers being used for, commercial video processing and painting. I remember when the Quantel paint box came along, I really wanted to get into that. But again, it was something where 
it was just very hard to get into and get access to. The, the computers were so expensive, and they had to be used for commercial purposes, you know, pretty much around the clock to pay for them. So I think it was in the 80s I finally, maybe, yeah, early 80s, I finally got somebody to let me sit in and fool around for a little while on a Quantel paint box, and I could paint with the computer, which was really exciting. And and then even in the 70s, I was really interested in this idea of 3D graphics or 3D computer graphics, because I'd, I'd heard about it when I was in school. I'd heard about military computers that could do vector graphics of objects that you could turn them in, and the perspective was work, all worked out. I think I learned about that from my perspective teacher in college. He told us that, you know, because we had to learn perspective, and he said, well, you know, the military now has a computer that can, you know, take an object and rotate it in 3D and keep the perspective correct. So it's just been a long road, and I think it was about 1986 that I finally managed to get my own computer. It was an Atari, and I started exploring 3D animation and modeling and as well as as painting and then that developed and I wound up getting an Amiga and with that Amiga it was before tablets and styluses and whatnot but I started doing artwork with it and I was working in the visual effects industry doing scenic painting and miniatures and matte painting and concept art and so on and I saw the potential for computer graphics in the visual effects industry, which wasn't really into it yet. And so I just kept pushing for it, and I, I wound up getting to... I did some of the first digital matte paintings on my Amiga. And I also, you know, in doing those matte paintings, I was using 3D rendering and so on. So. I think that was probably when I first really got access to it was in the mid to late 80s. I'm envisioning you having this incredible fun time doing this. I did. It was really kind of crazy at the time because the, the equipment was so expensive and I had a family and and it was quite a um, a risk and a stretch to buy a computer that had little real practical application and at that time, you know, people weren't really using it professionally for artwork. But I was, I was a musician as well, and I was exploring it for music equally. So I was using it to program synthesizers and sequencers and so on. How cool, which explains why all the incredible soundscapes in works like Anandala and Blurtasia. Fast forward to today when you wowed everybody at Cal State Long Beach that saw your work. How'd you first begin to work in VR and create those? Well, my first piece was, well, it became Zen Parade. And it was, I finally got access to a prototype headset. I think it was 2014. And I just started working on, a, on the thing, and I wanted to just see what I could do. And I made this experience of these abstract shapes that were you know, related to and very similar to the work I've been doing for decades and as 3D prints and and renderings and animations. But I rendered it. My son helped me to write a 360 
stereo lens shader so that I could render this image in 360. And then I rendered this animation and I got Intel to donate several months of render time on their supercomputer. And so I rendered this five-minute sequence and, and then put that out on the Oculus Store for the Gear VR. It's still available. It's for the Gear VR and for the Oculus Go. It runs on the Oculus Go. And that's where I started, but because I didn't know that much about, or at least I knew a lot about it, but I hadn't really much experience working with real-time computer graphics. I'd always felt that it was a little, just wasn't quite high enough fidelity for my work. But right around the time the, the headsets became available, there was kind of this convergence with the development of the graphics cards. The GPUs had made big strides over the years, and I kind of looked into it a few times and tried a few things and had been disappointed in the past that it just wasn't quite there yet, but it just happened to coincide that the, the stuff seemed like, well, I think I can do something with it. So I started working in real time using Unity, and I learned Unity, and I created Blortasia as my first project. Let's go through one of these three works in our imagination, any one of your choice, and just give anybody listening right now an idea of what it's like to strap on that headset and see one of your three VR works. Well, my latest piece, Onondala, is by far the most sophisticated, and, and I've done much more than I had initially anticipated I'd be able to do with it. And what it's like is, like Blortasia, you have the ability to fly. So you're in this 360-degree world. You have complete freedom of movement, and you can fly in any direction. And you're not flying a vehicle. You're flying, you know, personally, like in a dream or like Superman. So you can fly at any speed. You can just hover. You can move slowly. You can go very fast. And the space is a vast labyrinth of tunnels, and but they're very organic, and they are textured with multicolored patterns that are constantly evolving and shifting. And then within the labyrinth are dozens of artificial life creatures. They're abstract, like the space itself. They're completely abstract but they have very complex shapes and forms that are constantly shifting and undulating and, and changing their form and colors and textures and so on. And they're, they're alive, and they're able to regard you and respond to you and interact with you. And they do that through, they express themselves, they're purely creative in that they express themselves through their colors, their shapes, and their movement. They can fly around as well, but they can also undulate their bodies and, and shift their shapes and their colors. Sort of like a, you know, if you've ever seen an octopus that can take on different colors of camouflage, it'll suddenly change colors or flash different shapes or patterns. These uh, do that as well. And they also have their own language, which is a musical expressive language sort of like a whale song or bird song, but also with a, a little bit of a, a human voice component to it. 
and it's a real language, and they use it to communicate with each other and with you. How did you create them to do that? I'm assuming programming, but I don't know. Yes, it is. It's programming, but it's, it's an interesting way that I created the language using a, a form of artificial life which is a rule-based system known as L-Systems, or Lindenmeyer Systems, and it was developed by a botanist in the 40s as a way to describe the development of different kinds of plants. And so it's a, it's a formal grammar and a string rewriting system which allows you to just constantly iterate rules and change them as you go or evolve them as you go. And so it was a bit of a, an unusual application of L-systems, but the language is itself an L-system. So they, the creatures, the blorts as I call them, communicate through this musical language which is basically generated for them by the L-system. And the L-system has many applications and one of the ways I've used it in the past, back in the 90s, I was one of the first people to use an L system for a motion picture. And I created a tree, a very complex tree with flowers all over it, for the film What Dreams May Come. And up until that point, traditionally, things, you know, 3D objects in movies were generally modeled by artists, you know, working long hours and so on. And just by hand, every branch would have to be hand modeled. But for that film, the tree was not modeled by a person, but it was grown in the computer using the L system. So a, a set of rules was created for growing the tree, and then the computer iterates those rules. And I used a similar system, an L system, for generating the brain in the opening sequence of Fight Club, which at that time, in 1999, I guess it was, it was the most realistic, complex visualization of the human brain to that point. And so, again, artists didn't model the neurons, and dendrites and synapses and all that. It was grown using L-systems. And it doesn't escape me at all that you started at four years old talking to the agave plants, and now you're using a technology that had to do with plants. Wow. <laughs> kind of a beautiful unity there. Yeah, yeah, it is. There's the, I keep finding these circles that are interesting correlations. The, I thought it was really bizarre I hadn't used L-systems for for a while, I still use rule-based systems and many other procedural techniques in the creation of my world, but it was cool. It felt like coming full circle to actually use the L systems to generate their language. Kevin also mentioned that his Zen parade grew in a direction beyond what he'd originally envisioned. Well, it's just kind of an interesting thing. I set out to make Zen parade as a cool abstract art virtual reality experience. At that time, nobody was really exploring a, an abstract art perspective and the possibilities of abstract art and VR. But I wanted to generate awe and create a, 
you know, a cool, entertaining thing. But I found that the experience was so profound for many people. And then before long, I was contacted by a neurosurgeon in France, and he was interested in VR and, and using it in a medical setting. And he included Zenfrade and started doing studies. He's been doing this research to use my work as a hypnoanalgesic during awake brain surgery and to help map the right hemisphere just because of the unique abstract nature of my work it i guess lended itself very well to his application and so he's now done 30 awake brain surgeries on people who are awake and experiencing zen parade during their surgery the idea of awake brain surgery is a little bit terrifying. What does he find? It is, and that's part of what it treats. As a hypnoanalgesic, it reduces the pain, but also the anxiety of being awake during a surgical procedure. That is mind-blowing. That is something that I imagine we're going to see a lot more of in the future. Yeah, I think so. And I'm hoping that people will realize that there are many more modalities than than simple distraction, that VR, you know, VR is very powerful in and of itself as a distracting element, but I think there is a lot that can be done with the content itself to, to enhance and amplify that experience. Let's do a fun imagination question. You have just become the head of surgery at a hospital, and you're going to use modalities of VR in ways that you think will be most effective to help the patients. What modalities do you use? Well, I think awe is probably the number one goal I would have would be to generate awe. And then in addition to that, there is a whole field of neural entrainment. And I've been exploring that for many, many years. And there's a, you know, a ton of information out there about that. Some of it's science, some of it pseudoscience, some of it just nonsense. <laughs> but there is, you know, it's a real phenomenon. It really does work. And I've been exploring different ways of producing mental states using neural entrainment. And so I think that's another area that could be really that could really benefit the medical community. You have, in fact, been honored for your work with neuroscience. Could we talk a little bit about the neuroscience of perception? A lot of people just say, I'm looking at the art, but what's going on when we admire something you've created like Anandala? Well, I guess the big thing for me is awe. You know, I think my motivation from the time I was a little kid was in making art was to be able to share and communicate my experience of awe. And so I've been quite obsessed with it all my life, this idea of sharing my experience. And I never thought of it in terms of anything other than, you know, it's just like you see something amazing and you, you turn to the person next to you and you go, look at that, wow, and wanting to share your enthusiasm with other people. I just thought that that's, for me, that's what art was about. That's how the enjoyment I got from art. I would look at Michelangelo's 
paintings and sculptures and, and Leonardo da Vinci and, you know, and then, you know, comic book artists and all manner of artists. And I would just be like, wow, that is so amazing. And I would get this sense of awe. And so I thought, well, I like that experience. I want to be able to provide that to other people. And so awe has really been the central direction of my work and the focus all along. But in the last several years, you know, I started studying neuroscience many years ago to basically try to understand what am I experiencing, what's happening in my brain that makes me have this experience, and how can I, how can I optimize my artwork to incite that experience in others and, and inspire it. So um, I learned a lot about perception and how the brain processes information and, and you know, sort of the optical illusions and magic tricks and, and misdirection and so on. It was very useful in my career in, in visual effects for movies. But I became very caught up in this idea of, of artificial intelligence and artificial life and being able to use that, you know, use that technology as well. So I think... For me, awe has been the central focus, and I don't think it was till you know, I started doing VR, or maybe a little bit before that, but I wasn't, it's just in the last few years that the science of awe has come to the fore, and anyway, the science of awe has become, you know, a full-fledged science, and they're starting to understand that awe is this incredible emotion that is very beneficial physiologically, psychologically, and has these really interesting neurological effects. What are some of the effects? I see Michelangelo's work, or I see something you've done, I go, whoa, what's that doing to me physically? Well, it stimulates your immune system. It causes the release of various neurohormones. And if it's a strong enough experience, it can actually stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system, which, you know, is a, can make you just feel really good. You get this experience of satisfaction and bliss. But one of the main things I'm after, and I think is the, probably the most significant benefit to being able to inspire awe, is the idea of accommodation. So when we have an experience of, you know, a, a really transcendent experience of awe, not just your average, like, wow, that's really pretty, but a really intense one where you just suddenly, your life is put into perspective, you have a transcendence of your own self, the process of accommodation can happen. And this is when we, we receive information which forces us to reassess our entire model of reality and ourselves and who we are and our relationship to reality. And so it's in this sort of, you know, we all go through our lives with this, with assumptions about how the world works and, and how things are and who we are and our relationship to it. And awe can inspire this experience of basically reassessing everything and, and taking all the new information we've gathered 
and incorporating that into a new model of reality and ourselves and a new understanding of our relationship to reality. You touched on an issue that a lot of artists encounter. You learn about your art by exploring. Exploring's expensive, and you have to make the rent. What are some resources out there that are hugely helpful to artists who, like yourself, would have a family and maybe don't have a whole lot of extra disposable income to spend on VR stuff? Well, you know, really, the, the equipment is so much more accessible than it was when I was starting out. I think, you know, you kind of, you know, the entry point is having a computer and a headset. And that's, of course, you know, still out of the bounds of or the, the means of some people. But there are lots of places where you can access this equipment. There are co-ops and colleges and various programs where people are, are really interested in getting folks involved with the technology. And so I would recommend exploring those things. There's events you can go to and try things out. There's also VR arcades. Many of them have, you know, some of the simple painting tools, which are fun to explore. They're, they're pretty crude at this point. But, you know, it'd be a way to just start to get involved. I'd say just, you know, jump in and see what you can do. Sounds like a lot of fun to get to explore that. What's next for you now that you have Zen Garden and Blortasia and Anandala? Where are you going from here? Well... I'm continuing to work on Onondala. It is reaching, I think, a point of near completion. For me, they, you know, the dream is to build a world or a, a virtual reality that I can expand on indefinitely. And as the technology exists now, that's not quite possible. It sort of is, but... There are trade-offs, and so when I was making Blortasia, I learned a great deal, and by the end of the development of Blortasia, I couldn't really do much more of it. I'd sort of painted myself into a corner. I'd exhausted. I'd built things that would have to be redone in order to add to it. So with Onondala, I had a, a lot of new information, and I've constructed it in a way that allows it to be quite a bit more expandable, and so it's a much more vast world, more complexity, more, more, more everything. But, you know, eventually I'm going to reach a, a point where it will require kind of starting over. You know, new technologies come along with the AI stuff and everything. Everything's improving all the time, and so I think before long... I will want to start a new thing. Probably the biggest thing for me is that the the AI that I've constructed or the artificial life, that was a you know, a huge amount of work in constructing the language and their behavior and their the way in which they they have their own motivations, that essentially their brain. And so the way that's worked, you know, the way I've done that is it's constrained by the way I did it. And so I think for my next project, I would 
you know, start over and build a new system that's more ambitious, that would be more expandable, more capable. And with the goal being, you know, to make something that's sentient. And I'm not trying to make humans. I'm not trying to make a, you know, something that will pass for human, but something that is instead, for me, the more interesting thing is something that's truly self-aware. And I think Anandala for me is, is kind of a lab or a an experimental environment in which to explore this idea of creating artificial life, intelligent artificial life, that is creative and does not have the traditional or is not constrained by the traditional elements of life and intelligence. In exploring artificial life and artificial intelligence, the sort of the central ideas of it, of evolution and and survival of the fittest, competition, the predator-prey relationship, essentially conflict, is... You know, that's, we're stuck with that. That's the world we live in. That's the world we, we evolved in. But I believe that virtual reality offers the possibility of creating a new form of life that doesn't have those things. My creatures don't compete. They don't, there's no shortage of resources to compete for. They don't have to eat. They're immortal. They don't get sick. They don't have any of the, the sort of problems of of our world. They live in a virtual reality where I make the rules. So in that case, I'm really interested in making interesting, compelling behavior that is creative. It's expressive. And I often talk about, you know, if we could, in our world, if we could use technology to solve all of our problems, and, and create a, a utopia with, you know, abundance and no scarcity where everyone's immortal and lives forever and can do anything, be anything, go anywhere. You know, it's, it's kind of a far-fetched idea, but I think it brings up a, an enlightening realization that if such a world were possible, the only meaningful endeavor remaining to humanity would be art and creativity and and scientific exploration and really the pursuit of well-being. And so in studying behavior and what motivates behavior, both in computational neuroscience and biological neuroscience, I discovered a really interesting concept. And this this idea of we are motivated by two different types of motivation, intrinsic and extrinsic motivations. And with extrinsic motivation, we are motivated by, we do things, we have behaviors which are designed to get us something else. So they're largely to do with survival and position and an advantage. So we do this in order to get that. 
we build a house so that we can stay out of the rain or, you know, whatever it is. We hunt in order to eat. We do these things. We don't necessarily, you know, the thing itself isn't necessarily the goal. It has a goal associated to it. Whereas intrinsically motivated behaviors are behaviors in which the behavior itself is the goal. And interestingly, intrinsically motivated behaviors are scientific exploration, art and creativity, entertainment, and the pursuit of well-being. And so I thought, well, what happens? Is it possible? What, what kind of things, what are the issues in a world of living intelligent things in which those are their only motivations? They don't have extrinsic motivations. They don't need to achieve goals. They just, they just are. They just create. They just, they make art. They express themselves. They make music. And they are curious. And they seek and explore novelty. The pursuit of novelty and curiosity is the sort of the, the primary driver of intrinsic motivation. So that's a long, a long answer, but I think that's kind of what I'm pursuing. That's what I'm interested in. I want to just continue to explore this idea of, well, I want to create worlds of my art, and I want to fill them with intelligent, living creatures that are intrinsically motivated to make art and entertain each other and humans. Anyone listening right now will wonder where they can see your art, any exhibitions you have coming up, and where they might be able to see online the work that you've done. Well, you can see lots of images and video and and read lots about my work and I at www.shapespacevr.com. That's shapespacevr.com. And Zen Parade, my first experience, the 360 video, is available on the Oculus Store for the Gear VR and the Oculus Go. Lortasia is available on Steam for the HTC Vive. And I believe it works on the, the Oculus Rift as well if you have it set up so that it can track you in 360 degrees. At the time of our interview... Kevin said he didn't have any further events scheduled, but be sure to check for updates on his website, once again, shapespacevr.com. People can see anything we have scheduled on the website. On Andala, my newest piece isn't available yet, but I am showing it, so whenever we do events, I'll be showing that. As we wrap up here, Kevin, if people could only get one thing from you, as an artist, a scientist, a dad, and a creative about innovation, creativity and making a difference, what would you want them to take away from you? I think that folks should pursue and cultivate awe in their lives. And whether that's going to the beach or the mountains, you know, looking at rocks, looking at the clouds, exploring the plants in your yard, looking at the wonders of architecture, the beauty in art, Whatever that is for you, find awe and cultivate that experience. It's really good for you. 
Kevin, thank you for your time today. Certainly. Thank you for talking to me. I love talking about this stuff. You and I have been listening to pioneering digital artist and Academy Award-winning visual effects designer Kevin Mack. You can find out more about his virtual reality art experiences, Zen Parade, Blortasia, and Anandala, on the website shapespacevr.com. That's shapespacevr.com. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X, twomavericks.com. And you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.